Welcome to Data Science at Home, the podcast about data science for small companies and large enterprises. Data Science at Home is the show where we tell you the skills you need and the tools you can build at home. We are supported by World of Piggy, thinking human world in mathematical terms. Visit worldofpiggy.com or Twitter at World of Piggy. Here we are again for another episode of Data Science at Home. And today I'm with a friend and colleague, a computer science researcher at the University of Leuven, Rocco Langone. Hi Rocco. Hello Francesco, hello everybody. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in machine learning at the electrical engineering department of uh, KU Leuven. As you can hear, Rocco has a quite heavy Italian accent. This is one of the many commonalities between us that is being Italian. Uh, so, so Rocco, what What is your definition of big data? Well, maybe I, I may seem trivial, but uh, big data uh, means that your data set is too big to fit in the memory or, uh, of your computer or your algorithm cannot run on the entire data set. Uh, so in this case, there are two alternatives or you do subsampling or uh, uh, you have some kind of a distributed uh, approach, let's say. And um, is big data uh, what you do on a daily basis at university? Well, I had um, a few papers related to big data. Uh, I mainly focus on machine learning, but of course uh, I'm interested in, in the fact that the algorithm could be scalable to handle big data sets. So far, I, um, I, my colleagues and I, we were mainly uh, focused on the scaling up spectral clustering uh, to handle big uh, vector or also network data. Oh, I see. That, that sounds very interesting indeed. Well, just to summarize a bit and facilitate the listening to our listeners, the problem of big data is that indeed big data is, well, big. And uh, mm -hmm. this has consequences whenever researchers or practitioners need to analyze or visualize or even learn the structure of yeah, the of data. Course. So far, there are a number of technologies that allow to handle the dimensionality of large data sets, and, and I'm talking about distributed systems, for instance, uh, Amazon uh, Web Services as solutions at the infrastructure level. Uh, there is also the good old approach of splitting the data set into pieces um, and run on Hadoop or Spark uh, yeah. clusters, exactly. Uh, and these are software solutions. And then there is also sampling that allows to consider a subset of the data and, and work on it. And why didn't you just do sampling? Yeah, indeed, that's what we, we have done. We, uh, our approach is uh, related to, to sampling, uh, but uh, uh, the traditional approach are uh, um, not deterministic in the sense that uh, um, you get a different uh, sample each time that you run your sampling uh, um, method. Uh, which uh, leads to different uh, training and test performances of your model. For instance, in, uh, in clustering and community detection, it's important that the extracted subset somehow should be representative of the inherent structure of the data. And, and uh, with the traditional methods, sometimes, like if you do it uh, randomly, sometimes you, in your subset, some communities get represented and, and others not. I so see. I don't know if I... Definitely. So, so you can have a lot of, of uh, variability also. Like if you run the same experiment a number of times, you can have different outcomes. Yes, yes. 
So here we are talking about another level in which we can intervene to mitigate the curse of dimensionality. And what Rocco and his colleagues propose is a method to obtain subsets from big data, which are a good representative of the inherent structure in the data itself. Now, when I found this paper of yours, I got really amazed because it made me think of a way to tackle with the problem of big data even before computation. And it basically allows a researcher to select a subset of the data and work on it and have the guarantee that the rest of the data set will behave the same. Is that correct? Uh, well, we do not uh, have any uh, theoretical or mathematical proof, but uh, uh, in controlled experiments we have observed that uh, um, indeed the subset that you obtain with the, our technique is, uh, how to say, a kind of a, a condensed uh, version of the original dataset. It works like this. Given your dataset, you compute the similarity or kernel metrics, uh, if you are using kernel methods, by means of a parallel uh, external memory algorithm or PIMA. Then, uh, in the same uh, parallel scheme, you convert this matrix into a sparse uh, k-nearest neighbor graph. And uh, finally, what you do, basically, you apply uh, a technique called the force, which selects central nodes from different uh, dense regions of the graph. The FURS method is basically a selection method that allows you to select maintaining the same structure of the data. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, it, um, it has been developed for uh, networks, for graphs, that's why here, from the dataset, before we transform our uh, similarity matrix into a sparse graph and then we apply force, because force is uh, particularly suitable for graph data. I see. And, <clears throat> and how different is this approach from, let's say, traditional or random sampling? Well, it's different because, as we said before, it's deterministic, so every time you run the uh, the algorithm you will obtain the same subset and also it tends to to keep the inherent structure of the the data so basically uh, if you have a, a in your entire data set you have a, let's say 10 communities or 10 clusters in the subset you will have uh, each of these 10 clusters repre well represented so the risk of sampling i mean random sampling could also be that for instance if you don't shuffle the data previously, you might get with an, a biased version of the data set. Yeah, sometimes maybe you get uh, um, a lot of points from uh, some communities and very few points from other communities, and uh, this can affect the performances of the model that you will uh, train using that subset. And it's also true that the performance of an algorithm pretty much depends on the quality of the input data. Yeah, of course. it. Uh, because the training set is the data that you use for building your model. So if this uh, training set that you extract from the entire data set is uh, of good quality, also uh, the generalization ability of your model on unseen data will be better. That makes a lot of sense. As you explained before, uh, the method relies on computing similarities between pairs of objects and what you you guys call kernel methods. Yes, exactly. Uh, how long can it take in a data set of millions of records or, or even billions of records? Uh, well, we didn't test for billions of records, uh, but uh, what I can tell you is that for uh, a few million data points, 
it takes um, less than 10 minutes. Can you advise such a method for streaming data? Yes, it, I think it is uh, possible to handle streaming data, but somehow the method should be adapted to this framework in the sense that the subsample that uh, is selected up to time t, let's say, afterward cannot be any more representative of the data because in the meantime the data is shifted to a new distribution. So the method should be adaptive. In particular, this one is uh, static now, but uh, it can be adapted. Uh, it can be adapted. Um, yeah, I think it can be considered, but uh, uh, should be adapted uh, in the sense that uh, mm, if you have some data that is non-stationary um, and you apply uh, the method up to time t, that subset that you extract may not be representative afterwards. Uh, that's why you have to adapt to handle this uh, non-stationary behavior. I see. Makes sense. And uh, where else did you apply this approach? We have applied uh, to clustering and classification using least square super vector machine. What we have observed is that uh, the same model trained with the, the subset uh, selected using our technique has uh, a better generalization and lowest variance compared to the case where we use random sampling on, uh, or other selection techniques. Very interesting. And from your publication, I also, uh, well, read that, that there is an implementation in Julia. Uh, now, who is using Julia out there? That was something I asked myself. Uh, Julia is a, is a terrific language, I know that. But why did you guys choose Julia? Well, you are uh, right that uh, not so many people are using Julia in comparison with the other um, other languages because uh, um, there is not yet a stable version of Julia. Uh, but uh, the fact is that Julia is a high-level uh, dynamic programming uh, language which uh, provides a quite sophisticated uh, compiler and uh, yeah, an, an, I would say an intuitive uh, way of uh, um, distributed execution. I have a tougher question actually, Rocco. Again, I want to go back to the kernel matrix because I know that most of your colleagues are into, into kernel methods at the moment. And, um, and since the method is based on, uh, on a kernel matrix, I want to ask you, how do you deal with new data? I mean, if you have new observations, should you recompute all similarities again? Well, when you have new data, basically, uh, you just have to compute the similarity of the new data with respect to the training subset that you have uh, um, extracted and compute the related uh, cluster or, uh, uh, or class, depending on what you are doing, if clustering or classification, uh, by means of uh, an out-of-sample extension property. Basically, uh, you perform prediction of the new data without recomputing again the, the whole uh, uh, similarity. I see. So you don't have to recompute everything from, from scratch? No, no. You just compute the similarity of the new data with respect to the um, training, uh, training subset. Makes sense. And uh, well, for our listeners, kernel methods are uh, based on a uh, similarity measure. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, yes. And um, there are plenty of similarity measures out there, so-called kernels, uh, yes. which have some mathematical properties 
which I really don't recall. <laughs> and you guys use the radial basis function, uh, which is a bit like a, a, a Gaussian. Yes, or... yes, it's uh, exactly it's a, a Gaussian uh, Gaussian kernel. And well, actually, uh, RBF works uh, well in a, a wide variety of uh, of cases because it allows you to find uh, quite complex and nonlinear boundaries, uh, both in uh, clustering or uh, classification uh, uh, settings. And uh, and how do you guys compute the regular basis function on a very large data sets? We never construct the full kernel uh, uh, metrics, but uh, we use um, some sort of map reduce scheme. Uh, maybe I can get more into the details. So in the in the map part, for every node in a cluster, you can also uh, be in a multi-core machine, or you have uh, nodes in, in different machine. Doesn't matter. But for every uh, for every node, we assign a slice of the dataset. For each slice, we compute the corresponding rows of the kernel matrix by feeding chunks of the entire uh, dataset. Then what we do, we sort the columns of this part of the kernel matrix and pick up the indices related to the top k values. This is to construct the KNN graph, basically. So basically to select the k most similar objects to the current one. Yes, for, for each slice of the, of the kernel matrix. Right. Uh, and then in the reduce step, we aggregate all these indices to construct the final KNN uh, uh, subgraph that we will use uh, as a training set for our classifier or clustering method. And then you merge all these subgraphs into the global graph yes, of, yes. of your data. There is a very interesting um, figure in your in your paper, which we will reproduce in our show notes. <laughs> sure, sure. Another observation is that uh, well, you guys build a k nearest neighbor, meaning that for each observation uh, you select the k most similar objects to the current one. Yes. But it could happen, I assume, that in a data set you you might have an object which has a lot of neighbors, so it's very similar to a number, a high number of objects, uh, and another object which uh, indeed is has no neighbors at all, or, or just a few. Can you handle a variable k in a k-nearest neighbor construction? Mm, that's a good question. In this framework in particular, for simplicity, we have a, a fixed k. But uh, if, I, if I think... Uh, yeah, indeed, maybe if you have a variable k, I guess you could uh, somehow um, extract a subset which can uh, um, represent a kind of multi-scale structure in your entire uh, dataset if this is present. But uh, yeah, it's I never tried this, so it's just, uh, say, an idea. Maybe it's something for future work. Yeah, maybe, yes. It can be. Yes. Rocco, how do you deal with different data? And by different data, I mean that it could be easier for specific data set to detect similarities and extremely difficult in another. Or in a particular data set, objects might be very similar and uh, a custom similarity measure might be required in such scenarios. How do you deal with that? Basically, uh, in every application, you should uh, have some kind of um, prior knowledge to uh, understand what is the best similarity measure um, related to the data that you have, because it's um, application dependent. 
So I don't know in uh, if you are, want to segment images, you may want to use uh, histograms and then to represent uh, uh, pixels and then uh, you may use uh, some kind of uh, uh, KL distance uh, between histograms to uh, represent similarities to construct the similarity metrics or in uh, bioinformatics people uh, often use so so called the string kernels yeah so it's uh, it's quite good point before choosing the the kernel you should look at your data and uh, see what is the most suitable kernel for that application and this is a bit of black magic like <laughs> Well, uh, in some application is more say, more crucial than in others. Like you can use a RBF kernel in a wide variety of uh, applications, but maybe in some of them uh, you will get better result if you choose a custom kernel, as you mentioned. That's very, very interesting. Uh, let's assume that you want to implement a classifier on, a, on very large data sets. How do we proceed in a traditional setting? And how do we proceed or would we proceed by using your approach? Well, basically, if we are not in a distributed uh, um, framework, the approach is the same. You select a subset from your data, you train your model, then you maybe you perform some cross-validation to select some parameters, and you test uh, your model on a separate uh, test set to see the generalization. What's uh, uh, different here is the the way you extract your subgraph, which we have observed is quite crucial also in relation to the uh, generalization of the model that uh, you will have afterward. And so what did you gain by doing so? We have uh, uh, observed that uh, we have uh, uh, better performance on test sets uh, and also uh, less variability. Wow. So by considering less data, you can get better performance. Well, or by considering uh, a different uh, subset of the data, right. compared, for instance, to random sampling or uh, uh, metropolis uh, or sampling or uh, sampling based on uh, uh, entropy criteria and so on. I see. This is very interesting. It's almost philosophical because a lot of people think that the more data we have, the better. And actually, that's not always true. Uh, we need high quality data. Yeah, that's true. That makes the difference. Yes, yes, that's true. Rocco, I have a really a funny question for you. Uh, usually, I come from academia as well, and especially in computer science or bioinformatics, uh, we were used to give a name to our projects. You know, a bit like uh, with a with a pet. Uh, why did you never give a name to such a project? <laughs> Maybe because I don't have a pet, so I don't know how it works. <laughs> but uh, um. well, for, for the record, the paper uh, of uh, by Rock and colleague is uh, titled "Representative Subsets for Big Data Learning Using K Nearest Neighbor Graphs," which is first of all quite long to remember and quite long to. Uh, communicate to other peers, to other folks, maybe to data practitioners, big data practitioners, it would have been much nicer to have a, a short name for that. Yeah, maybe, yes. Next, uh, for the next time, yes. Please, yes. please. <laughs> All right. So is there any future work on, on, on this project or what comes next now? Uh, well, actually, uh, you suggested me a possible uh, future work, which can be... Uh, uh, have a variable uh, variable k 
to maybe have a kind of a, a subset that can uh, extract a um, uh, multi-resolution uh, um, information that is, if this is present in the original data set uh, and also actually uh, for uh, um, if you have uh, some uh, streaming data or uh, evolving data this method could be adapted to this uh, case so if i will uh, work on these things maybe i have to include you as co-author because you <laughs> gave uh, in the end you gave today the idea and i thank you in advance for that <laughs> That's very nice to hear. Rocco, it was very nice to have you here at Data Science at Home, and I'm really looking forward to other interesting contributions, even as a co-author now, <laughs> from your team and from you, and I hope there are many other contributions in the world of big data analytics. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening. It was a pleasure. Data Science at Home is the show where we tell you the skills you need and the tools you can build at home. We are supported by World of Piggy, thinking human world in mathematical terms. Visit worldofpiggy.com or Twitter at World of Piggy. Hey, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and help this podcast reach more ears. So tell your friends and colleagues that we exist. We will really appreciate it.